And I was seeing so many things that I couldn't put a label on because, you know, in England, the class system, there's so many labels and so many things that you can help you to judge people. And I found that I had nothing by which I could judge anybody at all. I just didn't know. So that said to me, everybody is the same and I can talk to anybody. It doesn't matter who they are. And that was such a, well, it was mind blowing, but it was such an opening uh, experience. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Jane Bryce Burdell, a local author and poet from Berlin, Maryland. She moved to the United States in 1967 and found herself inspired by events in her personal life, as well as events occurring in the nation, like the Vietnam War and the race riots in Washington, D.C. over the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Today, Jane is with us to discuss the poems she wrote during those tumultuous days, as she has recently published that collection. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thank you very much for having me. We wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about this new collection. Uh, well, it's not, it's a newly published, but these were poems that you wrote in 1968, 1971. So would you just give us a little bit of background? Um, I believe you moved to the United States right around your 24th birthday, I think it was? Yes, just yeah. before my 24th birthday. And um, I was coming here for two years, hoping that I could work my way across the United States and feel that I'd seen what I wanted to see and go back home. But um, I went home within a year, um, well, it was just about a year for a friend's wedding. And I realized then that another year would not be sufficient. And so I just didn't even put a timeline on it. And I said, let's just see what happens. And I'm still here. Now, what what kind of work were you looking for? Was it really just like waitressing across the no, country, or like no, 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 um, no? It was um, I was it was very fortunate um, <clears throat> in my church at home in England. Um, all of the congregation, the members of the congregation, were assigned um, into groups, same age group, basically, and they would meet once a month and discuss things in the Bible or discuss the, in somebody's home. It mm. was a very nice kind of way of people knowing the congregation. And in um, the, the leaders of my group, when I was kind of an old teenager and young 20s, um, had traveled to the United States. And in one of the meetings that we had, they were asking us, the husband and wife were asking those of us there, what, what did we want to do? You know, because we weren't, we didn't have jobs at the time. Right. And I said, well, I wanted to see the United States because I had always been fascinated by cowboys. I don't think I've ever seen one yet. <laughs> but that was kind of my motivation um, in a way. But I just... Uh, wanted to. I think the United States had always fascinated me for some reason. And you know, when I told people that I wanted to go to the United States, they would kind of look at me because in England then, if you 
emigrated anywhere or whatever, it was usually to Australia mm. because that was part of the Commonwealth. And, you, you know, why would you go to the United States? So <laughs> Yeah, we, sh- we shucked you guys off way, way back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> so um, when I said that, they said, well, we can probably help you get a job because um, they knew uh, some gentlemen who worked for the Methodist Church um, at one of their program agencies, which was in Washington, D.C. It was um, the Board of Christian Social Concerns. And so um, one of the staff members from that board, he came over to England and interviewed me for a secretarial position. Mm. He said, got the job. And so <laughs> I went, you know, I mean, it all fell That's into fantastic. place. Yeah. Yeah, and so then, so you come over to the United States, and, and the book is divided, sort of, or this collection of poetry sort of divided into three sections, and the first one is about, sort of, you meet this young man named Charles, who's a Green Beret, and you sort of hit it off really well, and so some of the early poems are kind of about that. Would you kind of tell us a little bit about, so coming to America, and now all of a sudden there's the, the Vietnam War, and here's Charles, and would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, where I worked, um, they were basically against the Vietnam War, and they had programs. They also had a program called Volunteers in Mission, and there were young, uh, you know, students or went over and kind of, I'm not exactly sure what they did, but that was, <laughs> you know, one of the programs. Um, I'm, it's interesting because I'm not, when I met Charles, um, it was just amazing, really, you know, mm. it was one of those, it just worked. And um, I guess I, well, one of the poems does really uh, talk about the Vietnam War and fighting, you know, going to war and fighting and losing your life and, you know, what it's worth. I I don't think I had any strong opinion about the Vietnam War then, but um, I guess when I came over here to the States, I did learn a whole lot more about it than mm. I knew when I was in England. Um, but he was um, he was tall, so that was uh, one of the things. <laughs> because <laughs> Well, you're not exactly a short lady. No, so. no, well, I used to say I was the tallest person in England. Um, <laughs> because really, um, there were very few places I could go even when there were men present, where I wasn't the tallest person in the room. Because I was, you know, I was, I used to say I was five foot 12. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, well, it's funny because my wife, Patty, is also six feet tall. Yeah. And um, she one time told me, there's some sort of staggering statistic about, like, only, you know, like less than like it's like one percent or some ridiculously small percentage of women are over six feet tall mm-hmm. so i know that you have a kindred spirit in patty yes two of them well in fact you know she's like what's going on stretch <laughs> when jane comes in <laughs> yeah. patty will say hey, hey what's going on stretch and you know so but i, I totally get yeah there's there's they're not a, a tall there's not no a, except i did find when i came over here that 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 people on the whole there were taller people in the United States, black and white, than there were in England. So, and well, tall and tall has always here been very, very cool. Even or especially for women, though the models are tall. Yes, like yes, yeah. Um, 
were you were you doing poetry already? Was poetry your go to thing? Like how how do you do? How did you come to poetry? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I'd always enjoyed reading. I enjoyed reading poetry. Uh, I enjoyed writing, you know, stuff like that. I'd never really wrote any books or anything, but um, I it's I find it interesting too because I think that the emotion that I was feeling, that was the only way that I could put something down on paper and, and express what I was feeling for myself, really. And, um, I, you know, when I look at it and, and when I wrote the poems and I, you know, would write one poem one evening and another one the next day, mm. you know, and I was thinking, so I think it was, you know, just... It was all a very emotional experience, and maybe something that I'd not experienced before. We um, we've been speaking with with several poets lately, and and kind of the kind of the running theme has been this notion of just distilling an idea until it until you feel like you get at it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like you know you have this you have these. I mean, you're abroad. Not not a living, like away. <laughs> Sorry. Like, wow, Tony just Yeah, I was gonna say, yes, I am. <laughs> so, so, so 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 you're away from home. You're away from home. You know, and, and you know, and you're in Washington DC, which was, you know and uh, uh, there was plenty going on. Oh yes. It wasn't definitely it wasn't a sleepy part of the country right. in the late sixties. And so there is plenty of emotion just in the air for you mm. to to kind of take in as as an outsider and participant at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think as I look back on it, I think too I was maturing. I hope, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think I was really experiencing emotions that I had just. Uh, uh, with a depth, I guess I'll say that, that I just hadn't experienced before. And that was the only way to get it out mm-hmm. of me kind of thing. Yeah, and I and I think that, you know, when you talk about, you know, as a as growing up in Britain, you say, okay, I have this dream, I want to go to the United States, I want to see what it is, to sort of fall into the frying pan of Washington, <laughs> D.C. during, you know, the civil rights movement during the Vietnam era, mm. you know, you probably, you know, the, you know, the feminist movements coming to light. So there's all these sort of things kind of coalescing together. I mean, if you were ever going to sort of get drop kicked into the frying pan, I mean, that was probably the spot to land. Yeah. And I will say this, one of the things that um, happened that was really uh, life changing for me um, was that like very soon after I arrived and I would walk into, into downtown or catch a bus or whatever, but, you know, I would just be looking around and, and I would see things. For example, I remember seeing uh, an African-American driving a pink Cadillac and I remember thinking, wow, you know, how does that happen? Well, if I'd been here long enough, I would have known it happens all the time, you know. But I I didn't, and I was seeing so many things that I couldn't put a label on because, you know, in England, the class system, there's so many labels and so many things that you can help you to judge people. Mm -hmm. 
And I found that I had nothing by which I could judge anybody at all. I just didn't know. So that said to me, everybody is the same, and I can talk to anybody. It doesn't matter who they are. And that was such a... uh, Well, it was mind-blowing, but it was such an opening uh, experience because... I could be me and I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't say, well, I better not talk to that person or I can't do this or I can't do that. So I was like freed mm. if you if you want to, to be who I am and really enjoy people in a way that I'd not really been able to experience before. Because yeah. there were also no rules for you. Like there weren't, there weren't rules that you had to... Like you, you didn't say, okay, well, as as a visitor, this is what because nothing, especially again, you didn't show up in a small town. You showed up in a exactly. city. No one cares what you do. Yeah, well, we were watching a show last night, and um, a woman uh, had a, had a tantrum, and, and she <laughs> threw she threw a television down on the street, and they were in New York, and then and I'm like. And the scene ended, and I'm like, you know, no one picked up that television. No one cared. That television's still there. Because <laughs> they, they don't care. In, in, in these big cities, you, you just, yeah. you know, how you, they, they're not going to, unless you're standing too close to them, they don't care what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> well, I know that what Jane's touching on there with the class system, I know that that was something that, that I found when I studied in, in England, when I did a summer semester abroad there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've shared this story with Jane, but we lived on the... We, we stayed on the Kiplin Hall uh, estate, which is the founding the founding family of Maryland. It's their ancestral home. So mm. like Lord Baltimore and, and all those folks, they came from Kiplin Hall. Mm. And um, I remember we were going to have a 4th of July party because we were being cheeky Americans having mm. a 4th of July party, you know, in England. And there was um, the warden who kind of took care of the whole place. You know, we invited him and his family to come to our 4th of July picnic. And there was a housekeeper named Elsie and her husband, and he was kind of like the caretaker of the grounds. And so we also invited them to come to our 4th of July party. And once Elsie and her husband found out that we had invited the warden and his family, they immediately sort of mm. uninvited themselves yeah. because class-wise, yeah. it would not have been, they felt it Proper, would have been right. inappropriate for them to come to our party if the warden and his family, because the warden and his family were a different social class right. than Elsie and her husband. And we were like, but we don't even know them. Like we see you every day. We interacted with Elsie and her husband every single day. We saw the warden occasionally, mm-hmm. but we were just being, but for Americans, it's like, we're having a barbecue. Yeah. We're going to invite all the people we like. Right. And, right. and many of the people we don't. And some of the people, some <laughs> of the folks we don't, but it was just interesting to me that even in, you know, I think that was like the late nineties, early two thousands that even still the class yeah. system was there. So it's interesting that you come from this background of being able to know by someone's job, by someone's accent, mm-hmm. you're able to kind of put them in a kind of put a round peg in a round hole very sure. quickly. Yeah. And then you come to America and it's kind of like anything goes. Well, right. and she landed in the middle of a race war. So Yeah, well, so there's that goes. as well. So it's, <laughs> I would imagine it's sort of like a topsy-turvy kind of take on on. Well, on I, well, like I said, I found it very freeing, liberating. And um, I find even today, um, you know, you still see people not talking to people. Well, I'm sorry, I just don't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, you know, if if uh, we've had some Hispanic 
gentlemen do some jobs for us around the house, and I speak a little Spanish. So I made a point of speaking to them in mm. Spanish, and I would ask them if they wanted coffee or whatever. And, you know, they kind of look at me right. like that. But, but we're all human beings. I mean, that's the thing that uh, I think is, is just a wonderful thing to discover. <laughs> and um, to, to turn to the poetry a little bit, when you started to, when you, when you decided that you wanted to collect these, um, how? When you started, you want. When you started to want to collect these, how how was it going through them? Like, did you happen upon them, or have you had them, and you 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 just returned them and said, "Okay, I think I want to get this done." Um, I had them. I uh, I had you know obviously typed them, um, and ended up I think maybe sometime when I was doing some cleaning out or mm -hmm. something, uh, ended up putting them in a three ring binder, and. Um, I, once again, you know, I was kind of looking through stuff and everything, and I thought, oh, my goodness, here's, you know, there's my poems <laughs> and stuff, which, I mean, I hadn't forgotten I'd written them, but I just, and then as I read them again, I thought, well, maybe I should get them published and see, you know. And now, um, were, you, were you still happy with them? Did you still feel close to them? Yes. They still, sometimes I'll, I'll run across something that I've written a while ago and been like, ugh. And sometimes I'm like, hey, you know what? That that wasn't that wasn't bad, even for, even for that period of time. Yeah. No, I I've read them. In fact, you know, I've, I've read them again. Um, they do convey what I was feeling, and um, no, I I think I, I I don't want to change them. I don't want to change. them And that them was my question. All. So you didn't you didn't go back and no and and, and tweak them. No. No. And no. one of the cool things, because Jane actually brought that three ring binder into me and said, "Hey, you know, these are poems that I wrote when I was, you know, in you know, when I first, you know, kind of got here and kind of were meeting people, and it was, you know, during the Vietnam War and then during the race riots, and you know, do you think that these would be worth putting together? And I'm like, this is a part of history. This is, you know, <laughs> this is part of your history, but it's also part of like the national history. And I think that there's something to be said for that ability to look back. And what was really cool was that she had typed these poems out on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. And so for me, uh, as everyone knows, I'm a hoarder of typewriters. <laughs> I love them. And so I saw these like original pieces still on some of the onion paper or still like, you know, on paper that it had yellowed and faded and crinkled. And, and I was just in love with sort of the, the actual product that it mm -hmm. was you know and so i was like you know jane i have this crazy idea let's let's not reset the type on this let's actually keep these different typewriter fonts because i think it looks like there's about three different typewriters that might have been used in the creation because i know a couple of them definitely look sort of different. yes yeah it, yes it could have well the the later ones could have been on yeah. something different and so but, i was like uh, i think we should keep this because mm. there are even some parts where like she had doodled yeah. <laughs> you had, she had doodled sort of on some of the poems mm -hmm. and then there were some spots where she had scratched out, you know, like where something she had meant, meant to type something and then kind of like XXX and then kind of written over yeah, top. Well, you know. you know, they didn't have any white out and, or anything else that time. You had to erase it if you could or else just exit out, you know. It's, it's, it's <clears throat> there, there are only a few people left on planet Earth who know what it's like <laughs> to try to erase on onion skin paper and then have to start all Thank over again. Thank you very again. much. Yeah. It's yeah. the worst. It's the worst thing in the whole world. 
So one of the things that we did when we set about putting this collection of poems together was I said, I think we don't want to lose that vintage feel. Mm -hmm. I think we want to keep the integrity of of that moment as much as possible and let's preserve it. And so we actually did. So all the poems that you see in here are actually like we, we sort of did like a high resolution scan of all the poems and kind of laid them back in. So when you're actually kind of going through, you see doodles that were not made, you know, last right. week. Yeah. I mean, they were certainly yeah. made like sure. you know, 40 years ago, but I thought that was a cool way to kind of approach yeah. the project. But I think, yeah, because um, it really gives it, I, I guess you can say some character if yeah. you like, as opposed to just seeing words on the page, you kind of, you get you do get a sense of when it actually was taking place and when it happened. And I, I wanted to kind of half follow up on that because I don't know if you're familiar or not, but in uh, in American history, in colonial history, there's this great tradition of collecting um, English visitors' letters mm. about what it was like. Mm -hmm. Like so, and again, it's very very. You're like a third person. You're 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 outside. You're participating, but you're outside, and you're like, "Hey, look at what's going on here." And it was a very popular thing. I think in like the 1800s mm. to to read these narratives mm -hmm. of visiting Englishmen who were who were like, "Hey, there's a revolution going on. I really don't care one way or the other." You know, they have <laughs> these interesting horses, or they have you know, you you'll never believe the food these people eat. Just like you know, like. It's historically significant, but not in the way, but also very personal. Yeah. As soon as you told me what the project was about, that's the first thing that came to my mind, just historically significant and mm -hmm. also deeply personal. Yeah. And that's, that's a third way of looking at history. So making sense from the outside. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was particularly in, the, in this section about the race riots, mm -hmm. I mean, there was a lot of, Xing out, crossing yes. over, which to me sort of almost relayed maybe some of the tension of that moment, mm. tension of the time. And I don't know if maybe that was kind of on purpose, but that's how that section felt. It was like these race riots, and it was almost it, the way that it kind of reads is like, I have to get out these thoughts, I have to get this on paper. And in doing so, I'm like, oh no, that's not exactly right. I got to go back and fix it. And it just sort of, the, the urgency of the moment was relayed in the type. I think, yeah, because um, the first kind of three days or so, it really was crazy. I mean, it, it really was. And uh, I had never, well, I guess none of us who were in that young woman's Christian home where just behind the Capitol building had never experienced anything like it before. Um, I was actually older than most of the young ladies there, so... <laughs> I was a mummy to some of them, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. You know, I, I wanted to probably create as, as, as accurate a picture as I could, you know, without either over-exaggerating or not telling it, the, you know, the way it was. But it was, um, and as it turned out, my room that I had was on on the, fr the front of the building. So I could, could see the street, which was Second Street, and I could see the Capitol building, and I could see, you know, beyond. So I had a really good view <laughs> of everything um, yeah, just by looking version. out my window. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, did you ever feel unsafe? Was, is, was, was that, was that were, you, were you ever worried about getting caught up in things? Um, I think we we were all um, a little nervous about that because, um, 
you know, as I say, I could look out my window and I could see where there were fires burning and some were burning not that far away from us. Um, so, yeah, and, and some of the girls, they really were scared. They really were. Um, but, but, I, but eventually, didn't you get caught up in the, in the movement as well? Yes, I mean, because uh, you married David Burdell, who was actually friends with Dr. Martin Luther King yes. Jr. So I guess in a way, you sort of kind of dovetailed right on the back of that. <laughs> yeah. So how did how did you end up getting caught up in, in the whole... Um, well, because I, I, I always think of just Anglicans. I, it didn't occur to me that you have Methodists there too, right? But Methodists were, were traditionally, I mean anti-slavery like they're they're, yes. they're, they're they've been a, they've been a progressive religious group for for a very long yeah, time yeah so part of social justice is part of what your job is yes and i think it's interesting one thing that happened when i was uh probably a middle teenager something like that um in my church which was a methodist church um the minister there <clears throat> One Sunday morning, he got up and he said that um, there was a young man from Africa who was uh, here in in our home in my hometown because there were some um, uh, mental institutions and he was studying his doctorate or something and and he was going to be working there <clears throat> and he needed somewhere to stay and was there anybody in the congregation you know that could put him up. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but, but uh, I did soon after realize that, <clears throat> excuse me, my mother said, yes, she would do it because my older brother was at university, so we did have a spare bedroom at mm -hmm. the time. So, um, and apparently no one else in the congregation offered at all, not one. Mm. And so that kind of was a lesson for me and again you know he and i would sit in the room and talk and i'd help him with his english sometimes and so mm -hmm. on and so forth <laughs> and so i think um i already <laughs> you know kind of was not fighting the fight but, right. <laughs> but, but uh, i was certainly ready to do it when i came here <laughs> And so the last chapter of the book is uh, poems about, you know, David mm -hmm. and, and meeting David. And, and he was, you know, involved in the civil rights movement. And he yeah. you know, was, was you know, friends with Dr. Martin Luther King. And you talk about a moment about, you know, when after the assassination where David, you know, actually got to, to see. Could you tell us a little? Yeah, he, he was um, he was at a meeting in Atlanta. And... Um, I think it was a Friday. I, I don't know exactly the, the date, but um, he that, and he heard about Martin, excuse me, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's right. assassination. And because he had known him and he was his friend, you know, he was really upset about it. And he decided uh, that he just couldn't stay for the meeting that was going on for at least an, another day or a couple of days, I think. And so um, the next day, uh, he made reservations to come home, and that was when he was walking to get on his across to get onto his plane. That the plane that had brought Dr. Martin Luther King's body to Atlanta, uh, it had unloaded the casket, and they were wheeling it well, wherever. Yeah, 
And, and he realized that's what it was. So as he has always said, he got a chance to say goodbye because mm. they were good friends. Um, they were together at Boston University and they were very good friends. So. And what changed in your life after the assassination? Um, well, I think that um, before he was assassinated, I, I had I learned a lot about racism because of the marches and right. all of that. And I really, I guess I didn't really know how bad it was, particularly in the South, you know. And, and so th that was very, you know, uh, eye-opening to me. And um, when he was assassinated, I don't, I don't want to say I wasn't surprised, <laughs> but well, that's the kind of thing that, you know, happens. And, well, something, something that's actually very popular now or, or moving back into the popular consciousness now is that, you know, we've spent a long time lionizing him and for good reason, mm -hmm. but he wasn't Mr. Popularity. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, no. But then, you know, when, you, when I think back to, I guess, and that's what, kind of got him on his crusade was when the four young ladies were killed, shot at their church and all of that. I mean, it, I, I, that to me is just, I don't understand it. And, and the KKK and all of that, I, I'm sorry. And, and that's, that's kind of what I was getting at, like how did you, did you realize the significance at the time and how alien did it seem? that this kind of thing was going on? Or because you got here in such a tumultuous time, was it something that was a little bit easier to... Like, now we're used to kids getting blown up at something. Mm, that, mm. But, but at the time, it was a big deal <laughs> if a kid got blown up. Yeah. Um, I think I was, you know, when I would hear about the kind of atrocities that happened, I was really appalled. Um, but after a while, when they keep happening, I'm, you get used to it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that means I agree with it, but the behavior doesn't really change much or hasn't changed much. And now that you've had all this time to sort of, you know, you said you put the poems away and then you sort of mm -hmm. came back to them later. Is there a sense of, I mean, how do you view these poems now? I mean, you wrote them as a, you know, in your, as you know, a, you know, a woman in a kind of in a foreign place at, you know, in her early 20s. And now you've been here for a little while and just a little while. And, you know, <laughs> how, how do you sort of, you know, view these poems? You know, do you see them through a different lens now? How do you feel about them? Um, no, I think, uh, I, I think the one that I was kind of interested in and uh, maybe that one is my kind of protest about the Vietnam War, which is one that I wrote about Charles. Uh, was it glory, glory? What kind of glory is that? Because really, what is the glory of war? There isn't any. Um, but no, I think um, I, that was how I was feeling, you know, at the time when I knew Charles and then, you know, when I met David and those were the kind of things. Um, <laughs> I have written a poem about David more recently, but, 
but it's about him snoring <laughs> at night. So. A little less romance yes, going on these days. Or more. <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Well, now it's part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Jane, thank you so much oh. for coming back on the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.